Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, a podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 18, July 19th through July 25th, 1861. Before we get going here, I have a quick announcement, and that is that we have rolled out our first Patreon episode that is on the Patreon site. Um, it is available for any level of a Patreon contribution. So if you are looking for a little bit of extra content, you can check out the Patreon website. And I think what we're going to be doing with those, we're going to be doing memoir reviews. So uh, talking about some memoirs, and those are mostly going to be from the common soldier's point of view. So I'll be uh, reviewing those and, and mentioning some some aspects of, of different memoirs, as well as some movie stuff. So uh, Civil War in movies, cinema, uh, talking about that. And then I might also do some travel reviews for the actual uh, battlefield sites uh, as well. So I, I think if any of that stuff appeals to you, uh, we're going to be rolling out those uh, at least once monthly. And, you know, once again, your contribution uh, is going toward the general upkeep of the show. So it certainly would be greatly appreciated. This month's Patreon episode is going to be a memoir review of Frank Wilkerson, who served in the latter stages of the war in the East. So uh, it's a weird spot, I agree, to sort of start. Uh, But... uh, if you want to give it a listen, there are some things that are relevant to what we have been talking about in these first few episodes, so give that a listen. Last week, we talked about Rich Mountain and Blackburn's Ford. Blackburn's Ford will affect our story today. First Bolt Run, or First Manassas, is going to be the sole focus of this week, and you may have noticed that there are two names for this particular engagement. In fact, there are several battles throughout the Civil War that have two names, depending on North or South. The Northern troops were more captivated by the natural aspects of the South, so their names will revolve around streams and rivers mostly. For instance, Bull Run, the creek we mentioned last week that the Confederates had taken up a position behind, uh, is the name for uh, the battle. Confederates were more familiar with the areas in which they generally fought, so they would name battles after the nearby town. Hence Manassas, the key railroad junction. So let's get into the first major battle of the war. Let's just remind ourselves of the strategic situation. General Irvin McDowell will move his inexperienced army out from the shadow of the nation's capital to Fairfax Courthouse, before sending men under General Tyler to perform reconnaissance on the rebel positions. This, of course, resulted in the skirmish at Blackburn's Ford that McDowell did not want to occur. The 42-year-old commander of the Federal forces in the field wanted to come up with a plan to flank the Confederate right, but especially after the action at the Ford, he would have to look elsewhere to the left flank of the rebels. McDowell had a number superiority commanding 35,000 men, as opposed to Beauregard's 23,000. That is, until Patterson fails to hold down Johnson's army of the Shenandoah. 
cavalry under Jeb Stuart would screen the rebel army as it boarded trains to take them to Manassas and provide much-needed reinforcements for Beauregard. The Union forces are unaware that Johnson has flown the coop. In the defense of Irvin, the army he is commanding is the largest force to that date on American soil. It's actually kind of crazy. You look at numbers for, say, the Revolution, and you think, man, I bet the British had this huge army. But then you realize that Cornwallis only has, like, 2,500 men in his campaigns in the Carolinas. Even Winfield Scott in the Mexican-American War does not command so many. So giving such a force to an inexperienced general could have problems. The Union field commander will voice his concern to President Lincoln, who tells McDowell, You are green, it is true, but they are green also. You are all green alike. I don't know if it's just me, but I would be looking for more of a, hey, you're going to do great out there, champ, sort of talk instead of, uh, it's okay, you guys, you guys all uh, don't have that kind of experience. So I don't know, that's just me. But the enlistment periods of many in the army will soon be up, and Congress would soon meet for a session so the pressure to do something is on. McDowell's subordinates are mostly older than him, too. And if you have ever taken a management position where you are the youngest, you may know some of the problems with that. General Daniel Tyler had already exceeded his orders on the 18th, and he will play a role in the battle yet to come. Confederate forces were now on more even footing with McDowell, but some of the troops were slow to arrive. Men under Kirby Smith would arrive late to the battle, otherwise the army of the Shenandoah would be present. They'll have an advantage when it came to intelligence. Rose O'Neill Greenhow, who we talked about during our segment on spies, would inform the Confederate generals of the planned Union movements and troop disposition. It is likely that the Confederate generals may have already known about the Union plans. I say generals because of the combined forces of Johnson and Beauregard. Technically, Joseph E. Johnson was the ranking officer, but he was unfamiliar with the terrain around Manassas, having come from the Shenandoah Valley. PGT was much more familiar, benefiting from already holding those positions we talked about along Bull Run. The division of command between Johnson and Beauregard would actually work out well for the rebels in this particular instance, when later in the war we might see uh, battles where there are two generals of the same rank, or one is higher but not really, uh, in case of Ambrose Burnside in the latter stages of the war, where it maybe doesn't work out so well. McDowell will be at a disadvantage by contrast. Most of the Confederate forces were in the vicinity of Blackburn's Ford. Why? Because the Confederates planned to do exactly what McDowell had planned. They were gearing up to push on Centerville and in the process conduct a flank attack of their own. Remember what we talked about when discussing tactics. A lot of these generals would copy from Napoleon's playbook. PGT Beauregard, who speaks French, probably was the most connected to the European general, so that is not surprising. The Union under McDowell will beat their enemy to the punch. We mentioned that McDowell could not move on the rebel right flank, so now he would choose the left. 
The plan was to send men to the ford of Bull Run at Sudley Springs, further north and west of the Confederate positions. These would be divisions commanded by David Hunter, who we met before, and Samuel P. Heinzelman. Heinzelman was born in 1805 and serves in the Seminole and Mexican-American War before a successful career on the frontier. He does well against the Yuma and establishes Fort Yuma along the Colorado River across from Yuma, Arizona. General Tyler's division will keep the Confederates busy at a stone bridge that crossed Bull Run Creek. This position is the left flank of the Confederates as they are laid out all along that small waterway. They would hold the enemy in place while the flanking movement was conducted. And if they do so, the possibility of catching the rebels on the back foot is more likely. Dixon S. Miles and the 5th Division would be near Blackburn's Ford, staying reserved near Centerville and keeping Confederates there in place. Miles is a veteran of Mexico and the frontier. Fighting Dick Richardson will accuse him of being drunk during the engagement, and a board of inquiry finds the accusation to be true. Another division, under Theodore Runyon, will be held in reserve farther back towards Arlington. July 21, 1861, the battle plan will be put into motion. Defending the Stone Bridge are two regiments under the command of Nathan G. Evans. Evans had been given the nickname Shanks while at West Point, supposedly due to his spindly legs. Before the war, Shanks had served all along the frontier. Later in the war, he'll bump heads with our buddy Beauregard, who will remove him from command, citing incompetence. The regiments under his command are the 4th South Carolina and the 1st Special Battalion Louisiana Tigers Wolves under Roberto Wheat. Tyler will begin his diversion against these men on the morning of the 21st, but he starts late, which will be key considering Kirby Smith is on the way with more Confederate reinforcements. Tyler's men would also be blocking the road for the flanking divisions, and by the time they sort that all out, it's going to be 9.30 in the morning when Hunter's men start fording the river, which is a lot later than they thought they were going to be actually conducting that flanking movement. Tyler would then begin to demonstrate against Evans. He uses the brigade under Robert Schenck, who we talked about when going over the train battle at Vienna. Evans is not convinced. He only has a little over a thousand men against a whole division, so Tyler isn't doing his job. Now Beauregard had sent Captain Edward Porter Alexander to act as a signaler. Signal flags had been used in the U.S. Army in the 1850s. The code was called wigwag and resembled a kind of Morse code. Alexander will rise to the rank of General of Artillery in the Confederate Army, one of only three to do so. After the war, he writes a memoir, and so we have his own words of what he saw. I remember about 8.30 a.m., suddenly a little flash of light in the same field of view, but far beyond them caught my eye. I was looking to the west, and the sun was low in the east, and this flash was the reflection of the sun from a brass cannon in McDowell's flanking column approaching Sudley Ford. It was about eight miles from me, in an airline, and was but a faint gleam, indescribably quick, but I had a fine glass and a well-trained eye, 
and I knew at once what it was. And careful observation also detected the glitter of bayonets all along a road crossing the valley, and I felt so sure I was on to McDowell's plan and saw what was the best part of his army. But I heard stories about reconnoitering officers seeing a little and reporting a great deal, so I determined to be very exact in my reports. First, I signaled to Evans, as of most immediate consequence, look out on your left, you are flanked, and then wrote a note for General Beauregard by courier as he was not near a station. Cavalry attached to the brigade of Shanks may have also informed the West Pointer around the same time. So Evans will leave his position and move to one where he can face the flanking Union forces. Only two companies of his South Carolina regiment will stay to watch the Stone Bridge. Evans will deploy the rest of his men on Buck Hill facing Matthews Hill. It is here that they will become heavily engaged with the lead element of David Hunter's division, commanded by Ambrose Burnside. Burnside was born in Indiana, the son of a former South Carolinian slaveholder who had freed his slaves and moved to the state. Burnside would attend West Point, but only served garrison duty during the war with Mexico. Being stationed on the frontier, he was slightly wounded fighting against Apaches. He would resign his commission before the war and actually had a job with his good friend, George B. McClellan, at the Illinois Central Railroad. He also had a patent for an early repeating rifle. Burnside will play a bigger part in our story, and also has the claim of fame to where sideburns comes from today, a testament to his distinctive facial hair. Beauregard is able to send men under the command of Bernard B. and Francis Bartow to help in the fighting against Hunter's division. B. was a native of South Carolina and twice breveted for gallantry during the Mexican-American War. He commanded men from Alabama, Mississippi, and North Carolina. Francis Bartow was from Georgia, a graduate of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences. This will become one of the schools making up the University of Georgia, and then Yale Law School. Bartow will have already been involved in the seizing of Fort Pulaski, from federal troops when Georgia announced secession. He was originally selected to represent Georgia in the new Confederate government in Montgomery. Rather than set out, Bartow would leave to become a field commander. He may have had a hand in the selection of the gray color of Confederate uniforms. It should be noted that the brigades of B and Bartow are both from Johnson's Army of the Shenandoah and are recently arrived. The Confederate reinforcements form up with Evans to face the onslaught of Union men now moving around Matthews Hill. Some of the Rhode Island troops are armed with Sharps rifles, which are some of the better armaments of the war, which we discussed during our small arms segment. Soon the brigade of Andrew Porter will arrive and fall in around Burnside. Porter will later serve as the Provost Marshal General of the Army of the Potomac during the Peninsula Campaign. It is somewhere in the intense fighting that Roberto Wheat takes a bullet that passes through both lungs. Miraculously, he will actually survive. Wheat is a tough guy. He tells the surgeon, I don't feel like dying yet. And the surgeon replies that there is no such survival on record. Well then, I will put up my case on record, Wheat responds. Bartow's brigade is also undersized, much like that of Shanks Evans. 
so eventually the Confederates begin to break and fall back. The 8th Georgia under Bartow will suffer an incredible amount of casualties. At Farm Ford, which was near the Stone Bridge, brigades from Tyler begin to cross. The first is led by one William Tecumseh Sherman. Now it seems criminal to have introduced Ambrose Burside, but not William T. Sherman, but alas, that is exactly what I'm going to do. It is not yet his time in our narrative, but rest assured, I will give a full introduction for William T. Sherman in a later episode. What happens next is stuff of Civil War legend. Falling back from Buck Hill, the Confederates had a second position past the Stone House and up a hill dubbed Henry House Hill. Thomas Jackson's brigade had formed on the reverse slope to defend against enemy artillery fire. Barnard B. will attempt to rally his men by saying, There stands Jackson like a stone wall. After the war, the addition of Rally Behind the Virginians was also added. There are some who believe that Barnard B. may have been actually sarcastic by saying that Jackson was not moving his men forward, uh, but I don't personally think so. We'll never really know for sure because Barnard B. is mortally wounded in the struggle for Henry House Hill. Either way, a legend and a nickname was born. From then on, Thomas Jackson would be known as Stonewall, quite a long way from being called Tom Fool while teaching at VMI. Jackson is also reported to have told B that they will give the enemy the bayonet. In fact, if you go to the battlefield today, you'll see there's a very large statue of Thomas Jackson sitting on his horse, Little Sorrel. It's pretty impressive, just based off of size, and let me tell you, TJ has been eating his Wheaties if you look at the statue. McDowell decides not to press the attack. Instead, he opts for a bombardment. Artillery is brought up to fire on the Confederate lines. It's during this time that another of Tyler's brigades under Erasmus Keyes will have a golden opportunity to smash into the flanks of Jackson if they were to cross Bull Run, but they do not take it and the Southerners are allowed to regroup. The Rebels will roll their own artillery forward and begin the duel with the Federals. Remember, the Confederates will have taken cover on the reverse slope of Henry House Hill. Artillery from the Union was allowed to move up to take positions around the Henry House. Confederate guns were able to use their recoil to remove them from the line of fire for the Union artillery and safely reload before being replaced. Remember from our segment on artillery that there is a recoil with those guns. Throughout much of the war, pretty much from here on out, the North will have a decided advantage in artillery. At Bull Run, the number of pieces would see the Confederates hold a slight superiority, which is fairly rare. McDowell would actually send some of his artillery to a position where they could hit the Confederates with enfilading fire. The artillery's officers were much concerned about moving to this position on the left flank of the new Rebel line without infantry support. They would receive some in the form of the 11th New York, or old friends, the Fire Zwaves. It is somewhere at this point in the battle where the sole civilian casualty of the engagement is inflicted, as Judith Carter Henry is wounded by a shell and will die a few days later. Now I mentioned how the Union artillery was set up for enfilading fire on the Rebels. They were still waiting for additional infantry support. It just so happened that the 33rd Virginia Infantry was nearby and started advancing toward the guns. We have mentioned before that uniform colors were not standardized as of yet, 
so it is a little confusing that the 33rd Virginia is wearing blue, especially toward the artillerymen. Surely this is another infantry regiment come to provide support. They all find out their mistake a little late, as the 33rd will begin to fire into them, inflicting heavy casualties on the men and the horses that were required to move the guns. It is around this time that Jeb Stewart will lead a charge directly into the 11th New York and put the firemen to rout. There were tales of the famous Black Horse Cavalry the Confederates had, which will affect our story again just a little bit later. The 33rd would charge and take the guns, which will spark a several changing of hands, five times to be exact. It is in these charges that Barnard B. is mortally wounded in the stomach, and Francis Bartow is also killed. Bartow becomes the first brigade commander to be killed in the American Civil War. Because of the inexperience of the troops engaged, more seasoned officers would have to lead from the front, and at times expose themselves to enemy fire in order to keep cohesion among their men. Confederate reinforcements from Philip St. George Cock will arrive on the field and finally swing the balance. Philip St. George will unfortunately commit suicide shortly after the battle. It is this point, Sherman's brigade, which he sends in one regiment at a time, unfortunately, is spent, as the first two brigades in Heintzelman's division under Orlando Wilcox and William B. Franklin. We will see several regiments we have mentioned involved in this fighting, including the 14th Brooklyn and the 69th New York, who will form one of the regiments in the Irish Brigade. In the 79th New York, the brother of Secretary of War Simon Cameron is killed at this point. Wade Hampton, commander of the famed Hampton Legion, is severely wounded as well. The Confederates are using the bayonet, just as Stonewall Jackson had said. This is also the first point in the war possibly we hear the famous rebel yell. A fresh brigade from Oliver O. Howard will arrive and set up across from Henry House Hill on Chen Ridge. I say fresh loosely. This is the last of the brigades from Heinzelman's division, and they will have to come a long way. A long way in July in Virginia. If you're not had to walk a long way in July in Virginia, I do not recommend it. Several men will die or fall out of the line from heat exhaustion. As another stroke of bad luck for Howard, Kirby Smith's men have arrived. And yes, they have been traveling in the same heat, but they have not had to go as far as Howard's men. These fresh troops will flank Howard's fatigued regiments and throw the Union men into retreat. This is effectively the last action in the Battle of First Bull Run, with the Confederates in possession of the field. We cannot close today without mentioning the Great Skedaddle as it came to be known in the southern press. The retreat of the Union forces began at first to be orderly, with the units moving back the ways in which they had come. Units of regular infantry would act as a rear guard to protect the 90-day volunteers. You usually hear that civilians had come to watch the engagement and that they were present on the battlefield. While yes, there were some civilians who had come to watch, they were miles away, so they were not like having a nice picnic while Jeb Stewart's cavalry is thundering by or something like that. Common misconception. They did cause some congestion on the roads, though, 
which was a bit of a problem. A wagon breaks down at a bridge crossing, and those rumors of the Black Horse Cavalry of the South start rearing their ugly head. It does not take long for confusion and a mad dash to occur. Equipment, including some cannon and many rifles, are strewn along the road, giving the Confederates much more needed small arms. The Confederates, who had participated in the battle, were not really in a position to press their advantage, though. Jefferson Davis, who arrives on the field after the battle, will criticize Beauregard and Johnson for letting McDowell get away. Longstreet's men and another rebel brigade who had stayed back at Blackbird's Ford realized that Israel Richardson's men were holding the road toward Centerville and did not advance. In the battle total, there were 5,000 casualties, 2,896 on the Union side and 1,982 on the Confederates. Now, we have had our first large battle of the war, so I think that is a good place to stop. Next week, we'll jump in first with some aftermath and the significance of the battle. Our hero from West Virginia will take center stage, so get ready for the little Mac show. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, and Venmo information. And once again, there is a new Patreon episode, so make sure to check that out if that's something you're interested in. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be welcomed. Once again, feedback is appreciated. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Questions, comments, concerns, all welcome. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great week.